This year, move the dirt and make an impact by signing up for Power Athlete Program to crush your goals. Join our tens of thousands of athletes around the globe already empowering their performance as power athletes. For less than a dollar a day, get our world-class coaching delivered straight to the palm of your hand. Our programming is performance-driven and goal-oriented. Finally tuned through my first-hand experience playing the NFL and subsequent decade-long coaching and collaborating with some of the baddest motherfuckers on the planet. As a special time offer for the month of January, pay up front for a full year of training will give you a free 15-minute consult with myself or one of the crew, plus your choice of nutrition protocol, putting you on the best path for success. Visit powerathlete.com forward slash training and start today. Those who start tomorrow never get shit done. Start fucking today. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. The first conversation with Dr. Joe Deturi merely scratched the surface of his expertise in hyperbarics. That's why he's back for part two, and as someone who's used to the pressure hyperbarics pun, Joe provides answers to all of John's questions since John just recently started his own hyperbaric chamber routine. Here it is, episode 572. Of the 40 sessions I just got done with, I think I got done with 25 today. And as I told you, I'm really fucking bored. One of driving down there and laying in this tube for 90 minutes. Uh, so then, then the funny part is the guy told me a lot of people who buy the 40 package never finish it because they can just get burned out of coming. Uh, I told the dude, I'm like, I got to finish this thing one because one, yeah. I put my name on it and two, uh, why the fuck not? Yeah, like, wait, I'm going to pay you and then not show up. That's not happening. Uh, yeah, no. Well, and, and then also people are like, Oh, how the hyperbarics go? I'm like, I don't know. I didn't finish. Uh, that's not, that's not me. But yeah. with it, like there definitely hits a point where you're like, fuck. Like, this is like dog day. I mean, I go five days a week, lay in this tube for 90 minutes, uh, sleep, you know, contemplate my life and, uh, you know, hear my ears pop and try to actually count how many times my ears pop. So uh, with it, um, you know, like what are some of the neurological effects? And more importantly, like as I've kind of got on the other side, the downward slide of this thing, uh, you know, have you done research? And I know we talked a little bit about on the on the phone the other day about like one when did people start noticing the effects? And more importantly, like, does it start to kind of ramp up or is it just kind of a cumulative effect? Yeah. So I think, uh, I think what you're doing is you're paying back the oxygen debt. Uh, and once your body pays back the oxygen debt, cause you're borrowing from Peter to pay Paul and you know, you're trying to move forward with life and, uh, and all of a sudden you pay, you get this oxygen, you pay that off. And then once you pay that off, then, and only then can you get the side effect and the benefit of it? That's why I think it ramps up uh, after about four or five. Mm-hmm. So is there a way to test somebody to figure out how much oxygen debt they're in? There is. It's your V.02 and how uh, how much how much you're metabolizing and how much you're breathing in, how much you're metabolizing, like how much you're taking in, how much you're processing, how much carbon dioxide you produce. And then uh, and you, so there's, there's actually a you can do pulmonary function tests to figure that stuff out. Uh, but, you know, have, have you guys realistically, done any, it's, like a pre and a post on that? I imagine you could. Um yeah, I honestly hadn't even considered that you could do a pre and a post on that, but I guess you could. Um, but but I mean, you, you, it also has to do, it's so multifaceted, right? Because your V.02 is predicated upon your ability to work out, right? So like you guys doing doing hit, you know, high intensity cardiovascular training stuff, 
I mean, that's going to raise your V.02 through, through the roof. So you're going to be metabolizing your respiratory quotient or the ratio of oxygen to uh, carbon dioxide production, oxygen metabolism to carbon dioxide production is going to be huge because you guys are able to do lots of work in a short period of time. So it, so it varies with the health. It varies with a whole bunch of other things, too. So I don't know is the answer. But. Would uh, would there be a, a claim maybe or maybe a case to say that uh, before somebody started the treatments, maybe increasing their aerobic capacity, maybe through like, hey, like if you're going to embark on this treatments and you're going to do 40 over the course of eight weeks, why don't we spend three or four weeks before getting in there and actually building a little bit of aerobic base, aerobic capacity? Right. So, so I really do think that, and, and you and I talked about that before you started a little bit, but I was talking more along the prep of the mitochondria, right? Because mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're prepping that ADT to ADP process, to, you know, zenzene diphosphate to zenzene tri, but zenzene diet to zenzene tri, right? So you're, you're working the cycle. And, you know, what I, what I think we talked about earlier was increasing your hydrogen, uh, increasing your CoQ10, stuff like that, which is all used in that whole metabolic process to create energy from, uh, from the, with the oxygen. So if you prep the mitochondria beforehand, stands to reason that it will be able to effectively do what it's supposed to do. And with that, I think it's a great idea to go ahead and prep. Hey, it's never a bad idea to go to the gym and get yourself worked out cardiovascularly and, you know, and get your work on, you know, so it's never a bad idea. Uh, I mean, aside for that, it increases things like interleukin-15, which is a powerful antiviral. So, you know, let's do that. Uh, with the, uh, with the COVID people, I mean, what, what are the effects? Like, what are, uh, like, are they coming in with this long haul, uh, disease coming 100%. in with these issues and, uh, like, how are you obsessing that? And like, what are some of the, the characteristics that you're seeing? And then how is the hyperbaric necessarily counteracting this? So what we see is, uh, in long haul COVID, we see, um, substernal irritation. So just they're irritated back behind here, uh, inability to take a full breath or what they call dyspnea. Uh, they also see this brain fog, uh, and they see lethargy. Uh, the problem is I can't measure lethargy. I can't measure brain fog and I can't measure. I feel funny. None of those are, there's no objective quality measure scale. The only thing that I can measure truly is a pulmonary function test. And for me, what we do is we, we do a lot of stuff, but the thing that we see mostly is FEV1 score, so forced excretory volume. So the forced excretory volume is with these post-COVID people that can't take a full breath, inability to breathe in and out. And what we see is that these guys and gals are, are hurting and they're in the mid-60s when you should be in the mid-90s, age-dependent, uh, you know, shape-dependent and stuff like that. But you should be in the mid-90s for sure, given your uh, given your body weight, your, uh, your age. But you know, they they don't have the ability to get themselves regulated. They're not getting enough oxygen and there's all kinds of problems with that, with COVID. But the bottom line is once they get the oxygen and the repair starts to happen, their FEV1 scores go through the roof. So they're in the mid 90s easily when they're done with a 10, 10, that's it, just 10 treatments. And as soon as they're done, they're like, oh my God, you guys are the greatest. Now they say, I feel better. They say I have less lethargy. I'm, I'm more energy. They say I don't have as much brain fog, but I can't measure that. So mm. objective quality measures. The only thing I've got is FEV1. So, and you know, we're scientists, right? I mean, you know, I feel better. doesn't really help anything. Right? <laughs> You're like, I don't know where to mark that on the test. I don't know how <laughs> I feel about that, Joe. Show, show me on the doll how good you are. <laughs> 
Well, uh, for those of the people that That's didn't what I was, tune, yeah, we should probably do a little introduction and maybe give Joe a little oh. bit of uh, <laughs> latitude, longitude to go in and discuss hyperbarics and then um, kind of bring it in. And though, for those of you guys, what, what was the last one he was It on? was episode 488, yeah. one of our first ventures with our pal Charles over there doing an amazing job on video. And we have accomplished a lot of fun YouTube clips. So as long and in-depth as that conversation was, we talked... Uh, hyperbarics being mainstream, Michael Jackson, mm. <laughs> what he had to do with that, uh, deepest dives and some adventures from Joe. So an awesome episode to introduce us not only to hyperbarics, but also yeah. our friend, Dr. Joe. Well, it was actually great for me because, uh, after going, uh, having him on the podcast discussing hyperbarics, I felt like, uh, if I didn't go forward and try to actually do the protocol and have some real world uh, practical, you know, feedback for him that it would be just kind of a wasted thing where you're like, you had me on the podcast, you seem all excited and you didn't do shit with it. So, uh, and then I just have to listen to Joe talk shit to me forever because we're buddies. So, uh, that was where I put him in touch, started searching, uh, everybody that did some form of hyperbarics in the Austin area, put him on touch with them. He fucking blew these guys up with all these questions. And I think these guys were like, who the fuck is this guy? And we ended up getting into a place uh, that wasn't exactly the way that Joe wanted it, so we had to make some tweaks on the on the uh, on yeah. the prescription to make it more beneficial. I could say in terms of the oxygen saturation. No but the problem is, it's uh, eight weeks, uh, five days a week. You got to go in and lay in this tube, and it's about a thirty minute drive each way. So it's a huge chunk out of my day. So. Can we walk through the experience, John? You've described it a little bit on one of our previous episodes, but Joe. Like, take us into the tank. What can a user expect? Not only, like, I guess at the cellular mitochondrial level, but also just like the conscious experience. Well, that and also what should they be looking for and what should they hope to avoid? That's always a good one. Too. Right. So here's what I tell people right off the bat. I said, first of all, oxygen is absorbed into the middle ear vastly differently than it is in the rest of the body. So here's probably what you're hearing at night. It kind of sounds like, you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like squeaking in the ears at night because that's the oxygen kind of either bubbling or popping out. It'll either do that really eeky, you know, sort of a sound or it'll just like, so you can expect to hear that for sure. Also, uh, like uh, like you've experienced partially. Um, well, uh, we'll get into that in a second. But but so most of all, you're going to have this increase in pressure, kind of like you're going down in an airplane. Like you know, when you climb up to altitude, it's you you kind of don't have to clear your ears. But when you go back down, that's when the babies really start to cry because they really need to clear their ears at some point. And kids eustachian tubes haven't dropped yet so they have a tough time clearing so that's why they want to cry but you know that's where you get that clearing sound uh that clearing motion if you will and then basically when you're on the bottom you're just breathing in and out repeating as necessary now when you come back out you're going to have an increase in metabolism i suspect you're eating everything on the planet when you get out of this thing and then uh you're going to have a uh you're going to be really tired when it comes by the end of the night i imagine so is that pretty so much the uh, uh, yeah, and the other one is is uh, like I have a ton of like um, um, gastro like uh, uh, burping. I find like the whole time I, I'm like I'm in the car, I'm like God, I can't stop burping, and um, I just always just figured it's just maybe oxygen, air, something going on. 
it's swallowing. So you're, you're more swallowing air than you are. So don't try not to swallow the air if you can possibly avoid it. It's hard when you're valsalving and most people just say, oh, take a drink on the way down or take a drink on the way back up. If you take a drink on the way up or down, you know, you're drinking a little bit of water. If you're drinking on the way up or down, you have the propensity to swallow air. Mm. You don't want to do that because that's air at a different pressure than it was than you know when you're out on the surface so you can definitely get gassy and farty so uh yeah that could be bad yeah and then other just the the ears popping i mean obviously yeah like they only pop on the way down it's not on the way up uh yeah. but but the other one um a little different the way that joe's chamber works is they plumb in 100 percent pure oxygen which yep. uh, adds a certain i guess danger factor whereas i couldn't find that specific chamber so it's the same chambers but they uh, actually pipe in a mask with oxygen and then I basically seal it on. I was kind of telling the dude, I'm like, man, you almost need like a helmet. Like it would be a lot better if there was a sealed helmet on and I could actually like just not have a mask on, just breathe air in the helmet. Like a spacesuit. Yeah. Like that's what I want. I want a helmet. Um, The problem with those things is uh, are are they tanking the oxygen? So the oxygen's tanked and coming into you or is it, is it an oxygen generator? No, it's a tank. Okay. So it's because, a tank. Yeah. Yeah. So what I do is as soon as I get in, they have like kind of a valve. I open the valve up all the way and then I try to kill his entire bottle. So, <laughs> so it's funny. I'm I, paying I, for this oxygen, man. I I'm come the- in uh, and, and like the first time I like went over and I saw the tanks and I like just like opened up the valves all the way. I'm like, yeah, it's just like welding tanks. And I right. got in there and I was like, hey, man, there's a regulator. I know how all this works. And I uh, just basically opened it up. And then it was like the bag was like, and then what I'll do is I pull it on real tight and then uh, um, I try not to huff it, but I'll take huge, big uh, breaths through the nose. So I, I just try to do right. nasal breathing. Yeah. I mean, it's deep diaphragmatic breathing is the best way to fill all the alveoli, even the ones way down on the bottom, right? You know, so so once you fill all those, you're helping all that gas exchange. So, yeah. Yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, it's like a big metal kind of looks like a small spa- um, submarine tube. They put yeah. it in, like they, they bring it in, seals it, and then it pressurizes. And and uh, the thing which you know Joe talked about about avoiding are the soft chamber ones, or the ones where they don't pipe the pure oxygen in. Right. Anything with an oxygen concentrator, it's just going to give you less that. So you know it's already less pressure. So then you have less oxygen, less. Pre- Why are we doing this? It's you know help me again. Now it doesn't mean that they're bad, but it just means that they're less effective at doing what we think they're doing, or. At least that's what the current data says. So I'm not trying to poo-poo on anybody's stuff, but uh, bottom line is if I have a paper and this paper says that it works, well, then I'm going to believe this paper instead of this maybe over here. So. so for those of the people that are listening that are new to hyperbarics, can you get into a little bit of the physiology, what's happening? I mean, I've talked about it, that the idea that at, uh, you know, I forget what the atmosphere, it might even be one or two atmospheres, we start getting oxygen to uh, uh, dissolving, really just diluting into all of the, the fluids in the body. Can you go into the process a little bit? Right. So normally speaking, what happens is uh, hemoglobin transport, uh, hemoglobin trans- or red blood cells with hemoglobin in them transport the uh, the oxygen in your body. And there's only four, he- uh, four oxygen molecules per hemoglobin. Um, so there's, there's a limit basically set. Uh, and that's just by nature of your development. And and if you have poor shaped, uh, you know, if you have rounded sort of uh, hemoglobin red blood cell problems, if you have sickle cell sort of problems, you increase that carrying capacity of the oxygen. Well, the, the thing with hyperbaric oxygen is we've seen that as you get up to three atmospheres, 
you can take all of the red blood cells out of the human body and plasma, what's left of the plasma is sufficient to support cellular respiration without even having hemoglobin. You're basically pressurizing this oxygen into the plasma, super saturating it so much so you don't even need red blood cells. We did a whole bunch of stuff with a pig. We, not me, but somebody did a whole bunch of stuff with a pig early on in the 50s and said life without blood, you don't have to have the red blood cells in your body in order to create cellular respiration. So that's the cool part of hyperbaric oxygen. And the cool, the really cool thing is that hemoglobin in the grand scheme of things might be as big as my head is on this picture. But if you're looking at plasma, plasma is as tiny as my eyeball for crying out loud and can get everywhere where the hemoglobin gets stuck, you know, uh, and c- quite often hemoglobin gets stuck, especially in the capillary beds. It gets stuck and has to push its way through and thereby decreasing the amount of oxygenation that's going on because it's stripping its way through, if you will. So. No. Is uh is this process just limited to humans? Have they done hyperbarics on uh, other mammals? Absolutely. And so we do hyperbarics on other mammals all the time. So there's there's uh horse hyperbarics. There's uh, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, the racing association. Did, yeah. did we have this discussion last time? We did. We did. And I thought that the was racing awesome. association yeah. said you are not allowed to have hyperbaric oxygen uh, immediately before a race. So I was like, oh, that, that's how you know it's got to work because uh, you know, that's how you know it's a performance enhancing drug because the betting people don't want you to uh, to have Dude, it before they run. If uh, if I was still playing the NFL, I would have a chamber at my house, hands down. Unquestionable. Um, like You're the, healing uh, yeah, so much. I mean, I mean, I'd just go home after practice, lay in there for an hour and make it happen. And it was funny uh, when I went in today, I was like asking them about all the switches. I'm like, hey, how do I depressurize this thing myself and how do I pressurize it? So they were taking me through like the process on how to like run it myself. And I was like, well, well, how about this and this? And I was like, well, how do I turn, you know, and uh, the guy's like, mm. I'm like, well, what's one day you're not here and I need to do it. So, yeah, uh, but it's um, man, like uh, unfortunately or fortunately, I get 90 minutes to sit in this thing and think. And the one thing I keep thinking is, is there an evolutionary reason for this to be working the way it is like think about that like uh like is this just some random thing that we found or was there an evolutionary real or an evolutionary reason that we were able to absorb oxygen at these below atmospheres like what would be the reason for it well so 1664 this guy named henshaw said somebody has a belly problem i'm gonna put them in this what looked to be a big pressurized domicilium they called it but it's basically a big pressure pot and they squeezed a little bit of pressure into them and they helped it helped the person with digestion so you know so once that happened it's like hmm, i wonder if what happens if you do this what happens if you do that like i said when when we talked about life without blood uh in the 50s they would do open heart surgery at 66 feet of seawater so pressurized in a hyperbaric chamber, they do it so that you could keep oxygenating the uh, the body without actually full. Makes sense. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, the uh, when we had John Sapolsky on the podcast, you guys freeze. Cool, no, I, uh, we can still hear you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I asked him an interesting question. You know, we've had what like five, six mass extinctions, and uh, you know, he's like, you know, ninety percent of the of the, of the life on the planet goes away during a mass extinction and then life crawls out of the ocean. And I was like, uh, I was like, okay, well explain this to me. He goes, well, think about if there's like a nuclear winter 
and there's no sun coming through and everything dies. You got to remember there's a huge amount of, uh, of life that lives at depths in the sea that require no sunlight. So life just goes on normal. And then what happens is, is it abates, uh, you know, nuclear simmer goes up and life crawls out of the sea. And as I'm sitting there laying in the tube, I'm like, man, I wonder if there's an evolutionary reason why this works the way it does. Because, I mean, it just seems interesting, the fact that, uh, you know, here we can absorb oxygen at these different depths. So does that mean, you know, and uh, but then other mammals fit into it. It's also the other weird one that I think we're one of the only sea mammals that actually has subcutaneous fat, which is more similar to like marine life. Hmm. Yeah. So. Now, the answer is it's a great thought, but I have no idea. <laughs> no, <laughs> and and there's no, I mean, it just sounds like well, yeah, anytime you put it in, it just looks like a bunch of weird conspiracy theories. No, I mean, you, you, you make a good point where you have these, all these, uh, all these objects, all these creatures in, on the earth that have, don't rely upon the sun. I don't care how hot it is. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. Um, it's, you know, it's always going to be more than 30 you know, 30 degrees because I'm in the water, liquid water is when it wind up being 30 degrees or so, maybe a little bit cooler because all pressure, but, you know, and then uh, they don't rely upon the sun, light, anything. They just exist, you know? So, yeah. so with the, uh, uh, when we talked the other day, you've uh, got a group of PhD students that are doing their research in hyperbarics. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the question I've always had is, uh, you know, okay, so the original protocol you shot me, was uh, 40 sessions, 60 minutes at, like, we're doing 2.2 atmospheres just because it's not 100% O2. I think you said right. it's about 85%, so we're figuring, like, 0.2 to make up for it. But that original protocol, which came from the Navy, sure. which did the study back when, 40 years ago, 20 years ago? Yeah, a long time ago. Not, so, not recently, that's for sure. So they just kind of arbitrary threw it out there. And then the study out of Israel a couple of years ago, which I think – used uh was it 60 or was it 20 no for 60 minutes but he does air brakes efrati's study uh he does air brakes too and he believes that the air brakes so it's a 60 minute session of oxygen but then there's every 20 minutes there's a five minute air break. 20 minutes on five minutes on the air 20 minutes on the o2 five minutes on the air 20 minutes on the o2 then come to the surface so um, he believes that the air has a lot to do with it and it may very well, we really don't know is the answer, but it, see, there, there's separate mechanisms of action, right? So one is for traumatic brain injury and PTSD, other is for increasing the length of telomeres, uh, increasing T helper cells, increasing, uh, you know, you know uh, basically generalized health stuff. So that's one. The TBI is another. What what we've seen now, what we're seeing now, and it's still, you know, I have about 25 or so of these in the uh, in the hopper, uh, 25 traumatic brain injury treatments that we're doing. And we're taking a ex post facto collection on it, looking at it. What we find is that you the lower, the, the closer your theta beta ratio is when you do an EEG, we're seeing that you respond the lower partial pressures of oxygen, like 1.6, 1.7 PO2, as opposed to 2.0. So what we're finding is that the worst people are better at the lower pressures. Um, you know, the better people are better at the higher pressures. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's weird. I, and look, we have, we have 25. So my N is so small that I really, I don't even know yet, you know, but just what we're looking at right now. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, like... <laughs> the thing that I'm laughing about is uh, 
The problem is, is that no drug companies can be able to make money on it. So there's going to be no research. And the cost is kind of cost prohibitive a little bit because it's not cheap to run the machines. The technology is not cheap. So it's not necessarily something where you can, you know, get a thousand people into these studies. It's extremely kind of labor time intensive. Like for me, it's a 30 minute drive each way. I'm under for 90 minutes. By the time I get home, it's two and a half, three hours. It's a huge chunk out of the day that a lot of people probably don't have. I'm lucky I get to go at seven. We don't start work until nine. So I can kind of like make it all work. Um, the, uh, so, you know, there's the, you know, proximity factor, uh, the technology. I mean, there's just a lot of barriers to it. So it's not as if you're going to have, you know, an end of a thousand to be able to pull from. So with it, sure. how are you, I mean, uh, I know we talked about different protocols. Uh, the one that I'm most interested in is like, okay, once you, once you get to 40 and let's say you're, you know, you've done the treatment, you know, you have some measurable, uh, pluses and minus, whatever you want to say, but then what is the protocol to necessarily keep extending it? Is it something where I got to go do a dive once a week? Is it twice a week? Is it, right. you know, once a month? Like, like how do, you know, how can we effectively keep topping it off so that I can yeah. continue to see these benefits? Good, good thought. I understand where you're at. Um, but I do not want to see a model like that, to be honest with you. I don't want to have a model where people come back to see me, you know, because if that's the case, then I'm not, uh, I don't feel like I'm doing my job. Um, so I don't want to have like a, uh, and, and I hate to bash chiropractors, so I'm not bashing chiropractors, but I hate to have a chiropractic model. Hey, just come back and we'll maintain you because you need it. I want to Fix what ails you. Give your body, because this is what oxygen does. Oxygen gives your body the tools to heal itself. That's all it does. It does. It's no magic cure for anything. Just gives your body the tools it needs to do what to do. So I hope that there is problem. Like let's let's say you have anemia, right? And your problem is you are you are anemic because your body's not producing red blood cells fast enough, good enough, whatever, whatever. And you are just anemic and you do not want a platelet rich plasma transfusion. Therefore, I got to see you regularly. Now I'm going to have to keep seeing you because that's the story. Short of that, I want to treat you and then see you as I'm walking by you in the mall and you're like, hey, thanks. I really appreciate you. Or, or you know, get a coffee one day because I like you. But because you're good people. But short of that, I don't want to see you have to keep coming back. And by and large, for instance, all the COVID patients that I've had so far, I'm in really close contact with all of them. And none of them have had a recurrence of symptoms, even the fog or the lethargy, none of that stuff has come back. So it's the ability of your body to start to heal itself. It just maybe needs a head start, right? Because you're in this oxygen debt. And here you are, you're like suffering, and your body just can't get out of it. It's, it's, it's rampant, you know, systemic inflammatory response, right? Because your body keeps going, I'm a little bit bad, so I need to swell up a little bit, get produce my red blood cells, white, or that cytokine stuff. I need to pr- reproduce all those white blood cells and so forth. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're in this do loop where you're continually overproducing and over responding. So if you can get your body back to clearance, back to ground zero, hopefully you don't have to come. Now, Efrati has not gone back and retreated people. But, you know, once you lengthen the telomere by whatever, 28% or so. Yeah, it was like a third. Right. About how long do you have to live? Because I'm thinking 130 is probably good. I don't know. Uh, So so that was an an interesting question that I necessarily couldn't pull from the study. And maybe it's because I maybe I don't know what I'm looking at. But when he was talking about lengthening the telomeres, 
Was he talking about lengthening current telomeres? Like, let's say, uh, you know, we what, what was it, like 32, 36 replications? Was he measuring the replications like, hey, you're seven years old. You got seven replications left. I've now I increased it by a third, so you have 10. Uh, you know, like how did the replication, like, uh, was it, they were replicate, they were increasing what you had in terms of replications left over by yeah. a third, or was it total replications associated? No. Like everybody got 10. No, like what you have left over. So I, I don't know the exact number to be honest with you, but, but if you get 25 in a life or 24 in a lifetime, you know, split that you get eight. So if you increase it by eight, now you have 32, but you've already used by the time you got to the point where you did have barracks, you use 10. So you have left over what you have left over. So, you know, 24, eight, you know, 32, now you're, now you're down at 22, but. Have they, uh, have they ever run it or, or like, in, and this is the the issue where like, you know, they were talking about, you know, as replications go on, aging increases. So it's almost like, you know, when they, uh, you know, like the difference between somebody between 20 and 30 isn't pretty noticeable, but the difference between like 60 and 70 and then even 70 and 80. And I was looking at a bunch of different pictures like they had uh, um, it was like telomere replications and telomere lengths and speed of aging increasing as you start getting less and less telomeres. And they were showing people like, you know, you have this kind of growth and they said peak growth is like 26 years old. And then they were showing people like over the course of like, hey, this is what this person looked like after 10 years. And then they were trying to go back and say, hey, this is how many replications were associated with it. I just wonder if like most people die before the last replication or if we ever run into a person that has no more replications and that's just kind of your kaput at that point. Yeah, I mean, this is the peril with going down the road of, oh, you know, your longevity is predicated upon your telomere length. I'm like, uh, while there is truth to that, it is not completely true because, you know, you could die of getting hit by a bus, for crying out loud. And sure. That has nothing to do with telomere length. You could die at six years old from, you know, some stupidity. But, uh, you know, so it's kind of like a uh, it's it's better, more healthy living, especially for the end stages. I think it's more healthy living. But short of that, you can also attribute a lot to that, like getting to the gym and doing your, your regular workout. People are like, well, you go to the gym, I'm like we're at the gym all the time. And it's, you know, it's part of my life. It's not a problem. I call it going to church. So, you know. Yeah. The, uh, the problem is, is when you start researching this, you get like a whole bunch of like uh fucking snake oil, Ben Greenfield kind of sales shit. And yep. you're like, uh, what am I reading here? And it's this uh, idea that there's somehow there's some fountain of youth wrapped up in the telomere length. And uh, like, but nobody's ever sat there and been like, hey, this person, we measured them. You know, they had no more uh, telomere replications. Here's what it like. Like, there's just no research associated with it. So it's kind of just a lot of, I don't know, like fucking like uh, um, the dudes, like the witching wells where they're like searching for water with like a pointy stick and then they happen to hit it. You know, that type of stuff. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. So it is a snake oil salesman is very much the case, you know, and this is why I this is what I don't want hyperbarics to be wrapped up in because there are some really, really, really good things that it can do. But can it cure your toenail fungus? I I don't think so. <laughs> so, so, what is, so. So what are like the basic uh, if somebody was interested in hyperbarics, like what are some of the the researched, renowned, known benefits that you can be like, hey, I can hang your hat on if you decide to embark upon this. But I feel like for most people, they're not casually getting here. Like something yeah. has to be wrong to get them to this point. Like you said, right. it's either COVID or you have a problem, whatever. Uh, sure. Like, you know, for me, I don't know if... Um, if we hadn't had 
if you and I hadn't be, become friends, had you on the podcast, and then we started kind of going back, I don't know if I would have ever been spurred to do it because I never sure. would have like looked at it and been like, holy shit, I got to do this hyperbarics thing. Yeah, no, 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 no. I totally get it. So I think what you're looking for is something that I refer to, not I refer, something that we call mechanism of action, right? So the mechanism of action for hyperbarics, that means like, what is it? What does it actually do? What does this stuff actually do? So our mechanism of actions are, for instance, first thing is uh, angiogenesis and neurogenesis. That is the growing of new blood vessels, new blood cell, uh, new blood pathways, if you will, and neurogenesis, uh, uh, rebuilding of synaptic pathways or uh, recreating the neurons that go between the uh, the axons in the brain, if you will. So that is certainly one that is known. It is there. It's absolutely there. Um, you, you reduce... Uh, like vasoconstriction. So it, it, it shrinks your veins and arteries, right? Uh, it basically decreases that size. Uh, that's a known uh, mechanism of action. And that's really important for things like burns, right? When, when you have somebody that's burned or is getting burned or has a burn and you want to heal that, uh, uh, it's, it's got some toxin inhibition capabilities, if you will. And those are kind of, uh, those are kind of not so well understood, uh, along with the not so well understood. So that's along the lines of like gaseous gangrene and, um, uh, that necrotizing fasciitis. Uh, another poorly understood uh, mechanism of action, but it is there, is antibiotic synergy. So there's some synergistic effect with the oxygen, hyperic oxygen, and the uh, the actual uh, what do you call it itself, um, and and the the antibiotics themselves. So, and then there's collagen synthesis. Uh, we know that it absolutely uh, synthesizes the growth of collagen or the production of collagen. And collagen is not just the stuff that we inject into our lips. No, mm-hmm. it's the building block, as you guys know, for every single cell that we have in the body. So. Uh, that's really important. What else does it do? Uh, boost stem cells, stem cell production by up to 800 times. So, I mean, stem cells and these, the cool thing about this stem cell production is that uh, we're, we're talking about the, the CD34 plus progenitor stem cells. So as stem cells go, it's the wild card of all stem cells. So it's the gold card, right? I, I want to make lung tissue. Oh, I want to make liver tissue. Here you go. I want to make, you know, and I mean, these are hopped up, souped up. And it's not like uh, injectable platelet-rich plasma, that PRP stuff, it's more along the lines of, because you you really don't get most of that. You, you get like 40% of what they inject into you, maybe that takes. And of that, it's probably 25% of those develop into something called stem cells that you can actually use. It's such a little, it, all that stuff is so voodoo, witchcraft sort of stuff. But these CD34 plus progenitors, these are the mots. I mean, this is the this is the, you know, bee's knees, whatever you want to call it, you know, whatever your listeners want to call it. But these are the best type of stem cells to get because your body produces them. So everything that your body produces, you can actually use. So that makes sense. There's other things like leukocyte oxidative killing uh, that's decreasing all of the, um, you know, that's cytokine storm that you have going on. It reduces all of that. That it tends to have an over response to things, uh, especially long duration things like COVID. So, that, is, uh, give uh, me a good breakdown. Yeah, Do I no. keep it simple enough? 
Yeah, no, I mean the uh, the one I'm fascinated on uh, is uh, with the neurological issues. You know, like um, you know whether it's some acute deal where you know somebody takes a big hit to the head or you know something more you know uh, chronic like I dealt with in the NFL, where now all of a sudden you have uh, you know decreased brain function either due to lack of circulation, uh, CTE, tau. I mean, that goes goes into all these things. Uh, the idea that, you know, now all of a sudden you can allow oxygen to travel on plasma and be into much smaller places. So you can effectively jam oxygen into places that oxygen couldn't get to because the hemoglobin were too big. Uh, like the neurological effects that we're seeing, um, you know, like what are those? And more importantly, like, you know, how could this benefit somebody that's going? Because that's the biggest question I get when I post anything about hyperbarics. Sure. People are like, hey, um, you know, uh, I. I'm either having some issues with TBIs or, you know, I had a guy hit me up, said his son had, uh, he didn't explain why, but that the kid would have had all these TBIs, but like running into these issues, do you think hyperbarics would help them? And my first comment is, is like, yes, unfortunately we don't know to what degree. And it's a, it's a pretty solid investment in terms of like time, effort, money. I mean, there's just some other factors. Uh, I don't know if there's some lower hanging fruit or if this is the first stop on the bus. Right. So before I get into that, let me address something that you already said, but I want to kind of hammer it home. My biggest problem is patient compliance, right? Because you got to be there every day and you got to travel to me. Then you got to change. Then you got to get in the chamber. Then you got to press down. Then you got to do your treatment time on the bottom. And then you got to come back up. Then you got to change again. Then you got to drive home. So you're right. And people just don't have that kind of time. And they're going, do I want to take the pill and just get, you know, get more better from, you know, taking a uh, Medro dose pack, which is just going to put 10 pounds on your midsection and call it a day. And maybe it'll have some anti-inflammatory effect. Or do I want the 20 days of anti-inflammatory effect that I get from hyperbaric oxygen that's going to do a whole bunch of other stuff and help my body get itself to where it's healing itself again? You know, people can't see that. It's like, I can't see the forest through the trees, you know? So, if you can get them to start to make that commitment, then they can see like, not only is this going to help figure out what it is that ailed you, but all that other stuff, all this doesn't stop working just because you're, you, you know, just because you have a thermal burn over your face or whatever. Right. So it doesn't just stop working. It, it all works. So it's, you're getting the medicine and you're getting all the side effects for that. But the, the mechanism of action that you're talking about is very Pretty well known. Uh, two things. It increases cerebral blood flow or CBF, which is obviously what we need to do when you have a brain injured or an anoxic person, somebody that has a brain injury. And uh, the other thing is neurogenesis or the regrowing, rebuilding of synaptic pathways. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about increasing the the connectivity between this node and this node, right? So it's like, oh, this node dead because brain injury is for me. Uh, All right. I'll give you a, if your listeners don't mind me getting personal here. Uh, I had an MBA. I had a motorcycle accident. I got, I got T-bone coming through an intersection nine o'clock in the morning. I was coming home from the gym at nine o'clock in the morning, coming to work from the gym. And I got T-bone by a lady who blew a light and total LOC in the car. I was blacked out, totally unconscious. My 47 Chevy too, by the way. And, uh, the, the firefighter paramedics had to rip the doors open, pull me out. I woke up on the gurney and I was, who are you? I'm like, oh, I guess that's me. Okay. <laughs> right. They're like, uh, we don't know who you are. I was wearing my badges and I was like, okay, I guess that's me. 
and uh, finally got to the hospital and I started feeling a little bit better. And, you know, uh, the doc comes in from the emergency room, uh, the emergency room, uh, the on-call guy, he's the neurosurgeon. He goes, hey, doc, how are you? And I'm like, who are you? He's like, you don't remember me? I was in your med school class. I was like, oh, God, I hope I taught you well. <laughs> He's like, well, I'm your I'm your neurosurgeon and we're going to talk and uh, good to see you. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take care of you. But it wound up being an eight millimeter hemorrhagic stroke or brain bleed. Right. So I had this pretty good brain bleed prefrontal cortex left side, which is very in touch with emotions, very in touch with anger, very in touch with suspicious or suspecting behavior and risk taking behavior. I mean, here we are. Here we are, Homo sapien, right? Like we we are the seventeenth iteration of of Homo something, right? Yeah. Homo erectus, you know, all the way up to Homo sapien, right? So we basically got rid of all of them in such a, a a leap and bound because of our prefrontal cortex. Our prefrontal cortex is literally overshot, overdeveloped, and overdone, right? And here I am stimulated because I have a dead node here, right? In the prefrontal cortex, eight millimeter brain bleed. Well, while it healed, it healed a little bit and I'm down to, you know, less than four millimeters right now. And we're talking teeny tiny, by the way, millimeters, this this is nothing, right? Uh, So, so I'm getting better. I'm doing hyperbaric oxygen. I'm uh, I'm doing uh, this neurofeedback therapy. uh, And, and, you know, all of that is to increase neurogenesis, to increase the synaptic pathways that are going between the nodes and to increase that superhighway, if you will, or to open up a superhighway and to uh, to get things to move around in there. But it takes a lot of shaking up the brain and getting back to normal. So uh, from my perspective, I have seen this work firsthand on me and I've had multiple concussion syndromes, traumatic brain injuries, uh, you know, explosions, you know, bad off and bad in many different ways. But uh, it's it's a way to heal yourself without actually, you know, because look, the only thing you can do, you can look at the brain, but when you're looking at an image on the on your on your device or whatever it is, your computer, you're looking at it. You're just look. You're not actually looking at the brain. You're looking at a picture of the brain. So it's the only organ that's studied that is tried to be healed that we're, we don't actually see. You know, <laughs> it's like, so if you see it, bad things happen. So if uh, for me, when I went through Dr. Amen's study, and whether or not you feel good about Eamon's stuff. I mean, I was still in his study for the NFL. I sometimes, uh, man, I don't know, dude. I, I sometimes wonder if they cook the books on that one. But I know when I went through all my scans, the part of my brain that was damaged was right here on my left frontal lobe. The part that they dealt with was sympathy, empathy, and emotions and all that. And uh, the guy was like, basically, that part of your brain has zero blood flow. Like, there's no, that does not light up. And uh, I remember as and I've told the story on here before, but as we're going through it, he's like, you know, we get good news and bad news. He goes through the bad news first and is telling me this whole deal. And then he gives me the good news, which he's like, well, we all the cognitive testing, all the IQ, everything that we tested, you were actually the highest score that we've had. Right. And I was like, oh, well, from ever or just the NFL guys? And he's like, the NFL guys. And I'm like, yeah, that's like being the best looking kid in the ugly class. So I'm not going to, I'll take that with a grain of salt. But uh, the, the thing he went through is then we were kind of going through and I was like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. So what you're saying is that I have a medical disability for being a insensitive asshole. And he's like, in short, and I'm like, can I get a doctor's note on that? Because my wife and my mother are never going to believe this. And my, I came home and my wife was like, you're the only person I know that gets a fucking doctor's note for being an asshole. And I'm like, yep, John wins again. But um, what <laughs> was wild. winning. 
Yeah, winning. <laughs> uh, what was wild was then years later, I had a bunch of SEAL buddies come up and they were getting some work done at the Newport or brain, at the Newport Beach Brain Research Center. And uh, I went with them and they did scans a second time. And this is probably about two years later. And uh, there was no marketable damage associated with that left part of the brain. And so either Dr. Amy cooked the stuff or something happened. And I've always believed that the brain can heal itself if one, you remove like the stimulus or the trauma. I stopped. I retired from the NFL. So no longer was I beating my head in. Uh, right. You know, you look at, you know, diet, nutrition, training. I mean, all the other key factors. But I really think. Uh, if you give yourself the right environment, your brain can effectively heal, which has been debated for a long, long time. And, you know, like once you have brain damage, it's inoperable. It's you're you're not able to fix it. There's no nutritional protocols, exercise. I mean, you're done. You're done. And we're finding that to be not the case, especially with hyperbarics. Yeah. So uh, you're right. I, I I believe there is a certain point of no return. I mean, when you have not just synaptic pathways that are broken, like that's a seemingly easy. Well, okay. So let me back this up. What does it take to break a synaptic pathway or a node to a node link? What does that take? It takes 1.3 G, 1.3 times gravitational acceleration. Hold on. Oh, that was 1.3 G. That was probably two for crying out loud, you know? So, so it doesn't take a lot. And it depends on how they were broken, how that stuff all happened, and how long it was hypoxic uh, before you started the healing process. So, you know, you can imagine the longer you wait to start treating all this stuff, the worse off you're going to be. So the guys from the errors gone by that were wearing the leather helmets, do I think it's going to help them? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe is the answer. I'm hoping. But, you know, the the sooner you get to this stuff, the sooner you get to hypoxia being reversed, reversing hypoxia, increasing cerebral blood flow, increasing synaptic pathway development, restoration, or getting your point, getting your brain to the point where it can create neurogenesis on its own. I mean, that's a stimulation. That's a factor that you can actually stimulate. That's neurofeedback in and of itself. That's stimulating neuropathway regeneration, right? And if you can get your body to do that, then you can just wire around the dead node. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm wire around the dead node. I mean, it's not, it's not always possibly dead, but you know, wire well, I mean, around. What's not dead. You know, the idea of creating new, uh, um, you know, like increasing the myelin sheath increase or in, uh, you know, creating new, uh, you know, neural pathways to be able to do stuff. I mean, the brain's pretty amazing. Like um, I was reading about somebody who I think it was, took like a steel spike yeah, uh, yeah. In, in the head and actually damaged. And they found like the, uh, you know, the part that severed had to do with like speech and some other things. And they were able to go in and reteach them to do these things. And, and the brain ended up finding new ways to do this stuff and rewire. Well, they, uh, that, that case, because this man had upstanding life, family and all that. And then when the spike hit, he started gambling away, started, you know, cheating on his family and all that. So it, it living was, the good life. You can say that. Um, I'm trying, I cannot, it's a famous case, Yeah. but then it was the dis and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Joe. Any it comment sounds there? like it's something in the prefrontal cortex because if it's in there, that's that's where that's where all of your um, all of your like risk taking behavior comes from is a damaged prefrontal cortex, right? So it's like, oh, you're doing all this risky stuff. Now you're going to be with you know you're usually an upstanding guy, and now you're making a decision to do something stupid. Well, that well, sounds like uh, NFL players towards the end of their career. You know, as guys go on, all of a sudden they start acting more and more reckless, and that's right. something that's observed. 
uh, I like the the one that's, that blew me away was um, Demarius Thomas just passed away, uh, thirty three years old, and he was having seizures. Oh, uh, uh, I guess he was dealing with seizures, which it, it, it was super weird the way they they uh, reported it. But then I dug in a little bit deeper, and I guess he had had a seizure and fell during the seizure, and you know that's <laughs> what they equated it to. But I'm thinking a thirty three year old dude, ten uh, year NFL veteran. I mean, you know, more importantly. What's he doing for these seizures? You know, how is this affecting? And yeah, they they just have not provided probably because they don't know anything. But uh, it just feels yeah. like uh, you know, at the end of your NFL career, or even every year in the off season, you know, hey, like here's your hyperbaric treatments. Go get forty of these motherfuckers. And we'll see you next year. Right, right. Or you know, uh, you, know, you know, like I said, you're you're not. I don't think today's players, maybe you guys didn't actually know that this getting hit in the head was a bad thing, you know, but well, I, think- I, I told you the story, right? That uh, when I came in the NFL uh, as a rookie, they told us that, you know, you got a concussion when you got knocked unconscious, which I always thought was hilarious. Cause I was like, how am I going to know that I got knocked unconscious? And they're like, well, somebody <laughs> will tell you. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> right. So like that, that was always a funny one. I'm like, okay, so I'll know that I got a concussion when I get knocked unconscious, but I won't know that I got knocked unconscious unless you tell me I got knocked unconscious. Exactly. And I remember exactly. thinking like, this is a real fucking problem. And then at the end of 10 years, I remember in my 10th year, I'm going into the Patriots and, uh, you know, they make you go to this little like, uh, you know, uh, talk to the trainer and he wants to talk about, you know, how many concussions and they give you this like kind of little survey. And when I, that first day, and I always remember, that was how they defined a concussion. Now, all of a sudden, 10 years later, we're having the same conversation. And they say, hey, you know you get a concussion when you feel disoriented. Your bell gets rung. Your eyes are crossed. You feel any form of like ringing in your head, disorientation, uh, yep. wobbly. And they went through like all of these symptoms. And then the guy looks at you and goes, based upon that definition, how many concussions do you think you've had? <laughs> so I, I shit you not. That first, like there's always asked you that question. Uh, the first year, you know, you got a concussion, you're knocked unconscious. How many concussions do you have? And I said zero. I've never been knocked unconscious. Right. Uh, I, I mean, uh, like, dude, I, I, uh, yeah, that I know of. I mean, in college, I, we were supposed to do this thing called a reverse hip where I throw my head in front and then I basically throw my back hip and roll up the dude. And it's a pretty dirty fucking move, but our coach wanted us to do it. Unfortunately, uh, I didn't realize that the guy's outside knee was, uh, was back. So when he stepped forward, he'd need me square in the forehead. Uh, oh. I couldn't see out of my left eye for like a huge part of the game, like to the point where I was like, nope, like literally blind in one eye for about 20, 30 minutes. And the guy put a knee right in my forehead, like terrible concussion, didn't come out of the game, didn't say anything, just didn't know. Just like all of a sudden I was like, oh, I just can't see their way. And they're like, well, we'll go the other way. Um, but that was <laughs> about the closest, but I didn't get knocked unconscious. So then all of a sudden, 10 years later, they're rechanging up and now they're, you know, hey, they kind of changed up and they're kind of redoing uh, the definition. And at that point, I was like, I don't know, like 70,000. Right. And, right. The, and the, like, the guy looked at me and was like, just wrote my name. OK, you're good. Go on with your day. Right. Multiple concussion syndrome. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, but like at the end of the day, I mean, I'm thinking like. Every time we hit, I mean, your eyes kind of go cross eyed and you kind of blink, shake your head. And you're like, OK, walk back to the huddle. <laughs> and let's go do it again. Yeah. Uh, like that level of damage, I mean, it's so it, it really wasn't until the last CBA, which was in 2011, 2012, kind of that end of 2010, you know, Junior Seau kills himself. All these guys are shooting themselves in the chest with a note like, hey, I shot myself in the chest. So you could analyze my brain. That was when all of a sudden the NFL had 
a, uh, right. um, like a serious problem. I mean, so the NFL at the end of the day is a media company. And the last thing yeah. a media company needs is bad optics on players yeah. killing themselves because the job they're doing is putting them in these problems. So they started kind of mitigating it. But, I mean, there was a, a whole lot of broken toy soldiers coming up to that point. Right, 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 right. No, I feel you. Um, no, the whole, like, uh, you, you get it at least. You get that the continual pounding is not going to take it. But like I said, you may not have had informed consent when you went in. But I think nowadays the kids in high school have informed consent. They know. They know that they are basically like like uh, 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 Tom Cruise said. He said, I want to trade football for a – for an education and still be able to walk when I'm done in that movie about football. Um, again. All the right moves. All the right moves. Right. So, it, and, and that's Cruise. it. That's awesome. what everybody's doing at this point. You know, they're looking to trade football for money and, you know, an education of some sort and still be able to walk at the end, but they got to know that they're going to get beat up because now oh, boy, kids are faster stronger hit harder now than maybe I ever did when I played. Uh, I, uh, people always ask me that. And I, I don't, I mean, there's obviously like the speed of the game. Oh, it's faster. I don't think it was, or I don't think it is people. Oh, really? dudes, yeah. Dudes are still as big. I mean, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, there hasn't been a Ted Washington at 400 pounds, you know, since nah. he retired. I mean, there's still some massive dudes. I mean, uh, like the size, I mean, like running downhill and having a 300 pound middle linebacker in LeVon Kirkland, like, like there's still uh, there were beasts. Like there's always been monsters playing this game. Uh, really? You know, yeah. I, I think what we see now is that social media and the way that uh, the NFL is doing such a better job in terms of like publicizing. So they were always super fearful. The NFL was always super fearful about turning a ton of optics on every player. Like they were they were good with the quarterbacks and maybe in the occasion, but now all of a sudden you see like offensive linemen in commercials. You right. see like all of these optics through social media and this and, you know, guys are taking uh, well, they have the ability to create their own brands as players, whereas before uh, only the biggest players had it because they had the mirror or the uh, ear of the team and the media and the team was willing to sure. generate this. Now, guys are like, fuck you, I can do it myself. So the NFL, I mean, I, I remember specifically when they started putting cameras on stringers over the fields. And, you okay. know, you, you remember when you would watch an NFL game and it was just like end zone and sideline and they kind of cut between the two. Now, all of yep. a sudden, you're seeing cameras fly around. I mean, there's fucking 13 cameras on every single person on the field and yeah. they have different end zones. I mean, they cut to this and this. So, like, technology and media has added such an element uh, to the game that they can't necessarily hide this stuff anymore. I mean, they see a nasty hit. They see it in a thousand different places. And before the NFL could kind of just not show it, now you have like Barstool Sports and this and all these other right. independent news channels <laughs> that fucking shine a light on everything. Sure. They're like, oh, and, look at it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Oh, yeah. And so it's uh, uh, like I really like the fact that a lot more power has been given to the players. But I think, the, you know, the issue comes down to – uh, the reason we see it is just because there's a lot more optics. I think um, there was a lot of scary individuals that if you were to and, – and I always hate when people are like, oh, this era was harder. I think every era can play in every era. Um, you okay. know, you could take a um, – like they were saying, you know, oh, Wilt Chamberlain couldn't play in today's NBA. I'm like, are you fucking out of your mind? Did you watch Conan the Barbarian? He was like 300 pounds. Like right. seven two three hundred. I mean, he would fucking break LeBron James in half if he tried to go low post. I mean, Wilt Chamberlain could play in 
every fucking era. Larry Bird could play in every era. To say Michael Jordan couldn't play in those eras or these guys couldn't play in there, it's all bullshit. Yeah. Um, the right. minute those guys got together in their prime, all of a sudden it would take like one or two shots. The same thing in football. Like, hey, that dude's 300 pounds. He moves pretty well. All of a sudden, like you bring in guys of different era. The one thing that would be different is the viciousness of the game uh, is dramatically less than it was 10, 15 years ago. Oh, you think it's less vicious? Oh, yeah. Dude. Oh, uh, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The The level of intensity and the vicious nature is not nearly today as what it used to be. So I played right on the end, uh, kind of tail end of that era where it was a fucking literally, it was a blood game. You know, guys were going oh. out to try to fucking take scalps. And now it's, uh, it's. I mean, they've, they've had to soften and take edges off of the game because of the money and the longevity. I mean, right. uh, a quarterback playing 20 years, that never fucking happened. If, if, right. if, if a guy played seven, eight, nine, 10 years, that was a long career. Now look how long guys are playing. Just because the practices and the durability, I mean, it's just Jeez, not. I mean, Brady's still playing. Look how old he is. <laughs> oh, yeah. And and you know what? I mean, uh, the fact that like it's him and Aaron Rodgers as probably one and two and the two best, and those dudes are old as shit. You right. know? I mean, like I was watching Aaron Rodgers uh, last night, and I mean, dude, he looks homeless. Like his face is all sunk. I mean, he legitimately looks like an old man, and he's out there slanging the ball. Tom Brady, uh, you know, I mean, he probably has a, he probably sleeps in a hyperbaric chamber. He's, uh, you know, he's got a bunch of weird shit going on. He's in my hyperbaric chamber, and he's <laughs> down here in Tampa. I want to get that dude in here. Trust oh, me. Oh, you, you don't think he has one? His whole house is a hyperbaric chamber. Probably when he walks in, it's a hyperbaric chamber. Probably. I heard he bought Derek Jeter's old house uh, on Davis Island, so he yep. lived around the corner from me. So. Yep. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, dude, if you're living in if you're living in Tampa and you're not living down on Bayshore, uh, dude, you're missing out. Yeah, well, un po' troppo caro. You know, I yeah. don't have that kind of money. <laughs> Dude, uh, yeah, whenever we, we would always go down and ride our bikes and, uh, you know, go down and like fuck around down on Bayshore. And man, I always looked at those homes and was like, oh shit, these are awesome. Yeah. One day, one yeah, day, one day. But I like it's, uh, uh, I don't think that the, the, with as many optics that they could effectively show the game as vicious as it once was. It's just, it. I, yeah, I just no, don't I think that it. people want to see that. You know, like, yeah. uh, like, uh, when all of a sudden they started turning the cameras on, we were at Veteran Stadium. And like those dudes are just up there just beating the dog shit out of each other. Like, like they just don't, I mean, now they would show all that stuff. They, they didn't show that stuff back then. Yeah. No, I bet. I bet you're right. I bet you're absolutely right. You know? No, it's just like here. I don't know, but looking from the outside in, it looks like it, the guys are getting faster, moving, whatever. But if they're not, they're not. I mean, that's all there is to it. I guess the 440 hasn't really changed, right? The 440 times and the, the hundred yard dash times are that. You know? Well, I mean, they, you know, they're like, oh, this guy ran this. I'm like, Bo Jackson was 235 pounds. And like, uh, you know, and people are always like, oh, fucking, uh, you know, he, I'm like, dude, you could take Bo Jackson. He was 6'2", 235. You could drop him into anything. And that's still one of the fastest dudes. I mean, right. uh, uh, I mean, uh, Deion Sanders still ran one of the fastest times. I mean, yeah. there were some absolute freaks uh, to yeah. play that game. And uh, I, I just, it, it's kind of like, um, uh, like, you know, boxing always does that. Like, you know, could this guy fight in this? And they, they do it in football and they've done it in baseball. And I think that's why they love statistics so much in baseball. But I think at the end of the day, uh, there was just a level of ferocity in that game that I think they've had to knock the edges off a little bit just because the money's too big. You know, like yeah. these guys can't even touch a quarterback because shit, they're paying a dude a hundred million dollars or half a billion dollars. The last thing they need to do is some fucking knuckle dragger that's making the minimum fucking right. roll that dude up and end his career. 
crack them and then he's done. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no. I see, I see where that comes from. Yeah. I mean, the, the money is too big, guaranteed salaries, which they never did. So, but I, I really think uh, if an NFL player in today's market wants to necessarily discuss longevity or potentially get on the other side of this thing and feel like they're, you know, don't have a whole bunch of unanswered questions. Something right. like hyperbarics has to be in the mix. I mean, we had Tom Inkled on the podcast and Tom still deals with a lot of NFL guys uh, that I played with. And he's like, dude, uh, I have guys call me and, um, you know, I'll call him back a few weeks later. No idea what we talked about. You know, he said he had one guy who he's like, man, if I'm in a, a crowded place and I close my eyes and somebody touched me, I'll fall down. And oh, he, really? He's like, he's like, I'm, I'm seeing this more and more. And guys aren't necessarily being proactive. And it's probably because nobody's ever thrown a stake in the ground and been like, hey, if this, then that. And here's a way to fix this. And I think my big jump with going in and doing your protocol and really and us uh, pushing this and then doing some testing before and after, you know, supplements and kind of putting this protocol together is, is I'm interested at the end of this to do a retest and see if those improve. And then tell people and be like, hey, this is what the problems were. This is where I got tested. Hey, what actually you- happened? What was the difference? Yeah. Instead of just a lot of conjecture, which is what we run into, where it's like, yeah, I think I feel better, you know, and like I fucking hate that. Where people are like, oh, I think I feel better, and you're like, fuck, like give me some concrete, tell me some numbers, give me something. Exactly, exactly. Give me something objective, nothing subjective. It's not going to work. But the other thing that we didn't get into that you and I talked about earlier, and I'm not trying to segue us, but uh, we talked about uh, oxygen induced myopia, right? Mm. Yeah, And that's one of the side effects that I didn't mention earlier. And you had a problem with that. It has to do with the way oxygen is absorbed in the eye and the concave nature of the eye uh, from the inside out. And oxygen doesn't come out quite the same way. It's very, it's a tricky subject. I mean, that's why there's a whole, like, uh, there's, there's an MD who's actually an eye doctor, right? Not, not an optometrist, but uh, an ophthalmologist, I think it's called. But, you know, that, that it's, it's a really jacked up organ, if you will. And arguably, if you think that the brain uses a lot of oxygen, pound for pound, the eye uses more oxygen than the brain. So it's one of these like, oh, wait, that uses a ton of oxygen. And, okay, it's poorly perfused tissue. So, you know, you're going you're gonna to get those vision changes. But the good news is it probably will change and come back. So you said yours got better. Yeah, mine, yeah, mine got better. Percy said his got worse. Yeah, most people uh, get worse. Uh, I was driving. It was actually the other night. Um, we were uh, going on Friday. We were going downtown to dinner. And uh, as I was driving, like I could see the sign like way up there. And I was like, hey, we're getting off over here. And uh, my wife's like, what are you looking at? I'm like, that sign way up there. It says Chavez, you know, Fifth Street up there. She's like, you can read that? I'm like, crystal clear. You can't? She's like, No. Like that, that is so far away. And I'm like, and that's when I noticed, I was see like, it. Yeah. well, I, I just remember I was like, shit, this is what my eyesight looked like when I first had laser eye surgery. And it's, you know, it's deteriorated over the last 20 plus years, but now all of a sudden it's kind of come back. So that's why I hit you up. And then Parsi's like, uh, mine got worse. Like, well, that sucks for you. Mine got better. And, he, and then he gave me some ideas. Like, well, did you have astigmatism? Cause it makes the eye more round. So maybe the fact you had astigmatism, maybe it made your eye more round, which is helping. Whereas he didn't have one, so maybe it made his eyes more concave. And I was like, right. hey, it's better yeah. than you, Doc. Yeah, the problem is lots of this stuff happens and we just don't know a lot about it, you know. So it's like, oh, okay, that happens. But, you know, it used to be that we do 10 treatments, 20 treatments, 30 treatments. You know, 40 was not unheard of, but really not a lot. And now all of a sudden, if Roddy's up at 60, he does 30 on and then takes a month off. 
and then does another 30. So he'll do 60. Those are unheard of numbers. By the way, he had 17% cataract maturization. So it's like, that should, Joe's opinion, I would opine that you should have uh, stopped the test at uh, probably 15% cataract maturization. So, you know, or something like that. So 17% of the people that were going through a study ended up developing cataracts? Yep. Why, uh, I mean, why is that? I mean, I, I well, know we're talking about the eyeball. Cataract is a known second-order consequence of, of many, many hyperbaric oxygen treatments. Like, if you do 10, you're not really going to accelerate cataracts, so don't worry about it. If you do 20, eh, maybe. You do 50, eh, you're doing 60, yeah, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. We know that it matures cataracts. It doesn't give you cataracts, but it makes them mature faster. So, look, I, I mean, think about it. you got an aging population. Anything over 65. You know, you're an aging population. You probably have cataracts. I mean, I'm I'm throwing dice when I say that, but it's pretty good that it's not going to be you know craps on that one. So I think I'll uh, I think I'd take the end, but what uh, you know, I mean, and then what, much worse, and seventeen uh, percent of them got much worse. What would be the justification to taking it up and bumping it up to sixty? Is he doing research, or is there something that he's seeing that you know there's a difference between thirty and forty and fifty and sixty? So unfortunately, in in hyperbarics in this sport that we play, uh, there's no funding to do this type of stuff. So you got to basically come out of pocket to fund a study, and really, it's unethical for me to do a study and for the patient to have to actually pay to be part of the study. So really, you do it for free. So what are you talking? Two hundred, two hundred fifty dollars a treatment times X number of treatments. Well, you roll the dice and you say this is the number of treatments that I want. I think it's going to be effective, and then you do it, and then you get the results at the end. You go, okay, great. I'm going to do sixty treatments. Why? Because this paper that I have says that 60 treatments is the number of treatments that I have. That Could 50 work? Could 40 work? Could 30 work? Maybe, probably, I don't know, right? So all I'm doing is basing it off what paper he wrote. And when he did it, he just designed the study that way. So, you know, that's well, what, kind of- like, But here, here's the thing, and, I'm, and I feel like I'm belaboring this point. How do you know if it works? Like what's, what's the metrics like, and, and this is like whenever I read a research paper, you always read the abstract, like, Hey, this is what they're hoping to find out. And then you skip to the conclusion. You read Most the conclusion. People. Yeah. At least I do. So then I go to the conclusion and if the conclusion, uh, like is different or whatever, then you go back and you read, but as long as like, you know, the abstract, Hey, this is what we're trying to prove. You get to conclusion. And then, you know, from there I we decide prove. whether I want to read, if I want to read the study, but I sometimes wonder like what, how do you define whether or not it works? Like if you put somebody into a study or let's say you have a hundred people going into a study and you're hoping to prove something, how do you know that the treatments are effective based upon what we have in terms of testing? Or, I mean, like, like we said, we we're not interested in like, Oh yeah, no, I feel better. Fuck that. I want to know the concrete. So traumatic brain injury for a perfect example, what we use is MOEs measures of effectiveness, right? So we'll, test them before and we'll test them after on these things. And what we're seeing is how well do you do on these cognitive tests? How well do you do, you know, we could do some objective stuff like cerebral blood flow scans, you know, uh, uh, spec scans, stuff like that. But those are, those are big, big dollars. I mean, that's not a cheap, you know, I think they're three, $5,000 a piece. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm not a radiologist either, so I wouldn't know. But, uh, you know, uh, with respect to the 
to the non-objective type testing, your, your actual cognitive ability, you can show that you increase cerebral blood flow with the spec scan, but then on this side, you increase uh, objective behavior. So it depends on how you write up what your success rate is and what your failure is, right? I, I form a null hypothesis. Whenever I write a paper, I form a null hypothesis. And I say, I think this is going to do this. And then you have, you know, you're, you're do all your math and your standard deviations mean, and okay, here we go. And then you go, okay, within this reason, everything that I thought would happen fell in this curve. So then yes, it was successful, you know, but even then, not only that, it has to be randomized, placebo controlled, double blinded, you know, so I can't know who the patient is or whatever. It has to be very, very specific. And then more importantly, I have to do my science and then open my kimono and then give it to you. And then you have to go and reproduce it. That's what truly makes it real science. And then it's now it's reproducible and double blind, placebo control, randomized, blah, 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 blah. All of that, that's all the gold standard. And then all of a sudden, the yes, this works. Well, geez, we're, we're, $3 million into that. And there is no Merck drug company or anybody paying for this. You know, nobody is paying for this type of stuff except coming out of my pocket to do this research. So. And then what's the end goal making, you know, making this available to doctors or other places setting up, uh, you know, treatment centers. So now, I mean, cause here, here's the deal. I think, uh, I had an interesting comment that a guy made uh, recently for me. I, I think it was in relationship to one of the podcasts we did in terms of like talking about like, uh, you know, you know, modern healthcare and the relation to pharmacology. And I, the guy made the comment that uh, his wife is in their final year of med school. And he asked her, how come uh, exercise and nutrition aren't a bigger part in medicine? And she made a point of not to say that doesn't work, but most people aren't willing to do that. They would much rather take a pill. And because of the laziness of people in terms of making a life change, it's easier for us to make a change through modern pharmacology than it is through lifestyle and change. And like you said, yeah. uh, people would rather take a pill than go and sit in this fucking tube for 40 sessions. It, it's the God's honest truth. It really is, you know, but, but the bottom line is, so, so what is all this for, right? That's a great question. What is all this for? You hope, you hope and you pray that at some point an insurance company is going to pick this up, right? And pay it, right? And go, yes, uh, you guys are going to pay for my traumatic brain injury stuff. That's what everybody, Congress, we're going to pay to help these, uh, you know, wounded warriors, these veterans that that have TBI and PTSD. We're going to pay for it. Man, no, I've, always actually, said, I've, I've, I've always said that if we're going to send our people to war, you have to be willing to do what it takes to take care of them when they come home. you have to be able to do, you have to be able to pay for it. That's the bottom line, right? That's the God's honest truth. But the problem with getting an insurance company, and remember the federal government is still an insurance company. TRICARE is an insurance. In order to get an insurance company to pay for something, it's, it's a zero, it's, it's, we call it a ZBT, zero baseline transfer, right? There will be no, we're going to stop treating broken arms if we start treating hyperbarics, right? Because it's a dollars and cents game. And, sure. and the insurance company will not lose money. I guarantee you that one. So they're not going to lose a single dime, but they're going to take out glaucoma treatments and then they will put in hyperbaric treatments. So, you know, whatever. Or you're just going to pay this much more for your for your hyperbaric treatment or whatever. It's just so pay me now, pay me later. The insurance company will always get paid. And as that is the 
crux of our entire medical system, that's where the drug interaction definition push comes from because that's where the money is. The money is in the drugs. The money's not in you going to the gym and having a gym membership. Why would that be included? Right? Uh, that makes no sense whatsoever. Well, uh, the day, um, so I, uh, I've spoken about it on the podcast. I got asked to uh, present at a, a conference on national security up at the, the war college up in Pennsylvania. And we went through and each person that was there discussed, um, you know, their area of expertise. Mine had to do with the lack of physical fitness for not only, you know, kids under 18, but, uh, you know, fighting age adults in terms of like readiness. Like, I mean, if, you know, the second amendment was designed, uh, you know, the, the regulation, the calling out of the militia, could you, are you fit enough to answer the call in time of need? You know, I mean, and, you know, it was no. less than a quarter of kids 16 to 18 are fit enough to pass, um, you know, U.S. military standards of those that are eligible. And so I had all these numbers. Uh, wow. One of the guys that uh, presented with me, his deal, he was an Indian doctor, uh, Ph.D., M.D. guy. I mean, so fucking smart that uh, it almost hurt me. But uh, his deal had to do with the U.S.'s dependence on foreign pharmaceuticals and the fact that our entire healthcare system is designed to make people dependent on pharmaceuticals and more importantly, generic drugs that are not produced in this country. Uh, 75% of all the, you know, uh, the drugs that are the generics are produced in India and China. Uh, and like, you know, the way that the, you know, healthcare and uh, insurance is set up is to push these, you know, uh, generics and this and, you know, things. And uh, he's like, what if all of a sudden the boats stop coming with those drugs? What if, yep. um, you know, we have something where, you know, like we actually have, uh, you know, and this is, you know, we were talking about um, the gain of function research that the WHO was doing on COVID. Uh, I mean, on the coronavirus, they were also doing gain of function research on Mar on MERS, you know, the, uh, uh, yeah. you know, Middle Eastern Mi deal. Middle Eastern. Eastern yeah, respiratory syndrome. Uh, that's like a global killer. And his oh, yeah. deal is like, uh, you know, like it's 50% contagious. Or I, th I think he said it's 90% contagious, 50% of those people all die. And it's like the incubation period. He goes, he goes, that's like a legitimate global killer. And we were doing gain-of-function research on that as well. His really? deal was like, okay, so what if something like that strikes India or strikes a country or whatever who it's producing all those? He goes, what happens to America with its dependence upon foreign drugs in terms of this pharmacology where now you're hooked on everything? He's like, Don't he, worry. Well, I mean, he, he's like, that's basically, that's his, as he viewed, our largest threat to national security. Uh, the other thing he talked about, which fucking blew my mind, was, uh, or I mean, not, not him, but another guy in the deal, was the uh, fentanyl coming across the border, which oh, is yeah. like, you know, X amount of times more, uh, you know, uh, addictive and deadly and this and the amount of that's coming through and how heroin has basically gone away and everybody's on this fentanyl because it's cheap. And his deal was like, this is creating a situation that is going to become unmanageable for people that are addicted in this. So now if you have yeah. people that start on opiates and get into, and so, I mean, it was, uh, it was well, extremely enlightening to be in, in this group and to listen to this, but to hear these problems in real time from guys that sit super high, way higher in the food chain than you and I. And that's oh, yeah. the one that kind of blew me away where you don't want to necessarily get to the point where you're seven, you know, 65, 75 years old and you're, you know, you have a, a, a fucking box of 50 pills that you have to take a day just to keep functioning. Cause yep. I mean, what kind of life is that? And more importantly, that dependence is going to be a real fucking problem. No, I get it. I get it for sure. And that's a thing. Um, but, but I, I am, I will not underestimate the drunk company's ability to 
produce or manufacture those at a moment's notice at a moment's notice at the highest cost possible uh, for the federal government in the unlikely event that that comes to pass, then uh, the drug companies will make money. And I'm sure I'm going to get shot because of that, but I don't care. All of a sudden, a black minivan pulls up. You're like, fuck. (laughs) Exactly. Like, why is there a black car up front? You know, but they're coming to the wrong. Just so that you know, they are coming to the wrong office. This is not the place where you want to pull that shit. So, (laughs) I mean, you can try it once. You can try it for a couple hundred rounds, but. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, first of all, I live in Florida and uh, I'm batshit crazy. I live, I fucking do dives for a living. Yeah, uh, the uh, it, it like it's I think a, a, a big like, um, you know, byproduct of this podcast power through radio uh, yeah. is, you know, exposing some of these not exposing, but like shedding light on these alternate methods that sure. uh, traditional, you know, uh, fucking pharmacology, medicine, whatever it is like there's other options out there. When you go to your doctor who's just trained in modern pharmacology, there's yep. other things. I mean, you know, if your cholesterol's high, there's other ways to bring it down more so than just giving you, you know, some form of statin. Like there's right. other things they can do in terms of managing your health through diet, exercise, you know, aerobic base, hyperbarics, you know, testing so- micronutrients. I mean, there's other ways to skin this thing. And right. the, the issue that we don't want to we've been always trying to shine light on is it's uh, it's not some new age hippie bullshit. This is legitimately how most people are going to try to get into the next, you know, next part of their life. And I think that the traditional way that uh, westernized society is going is a fucking absolute car wreck on fire. It, it is because we are now so dependent upon the federal government to take care of us. I want less and less dependence upon you, federal government. I want more and more dependence upon myself because when stuff goes sideways, I know I could always go for a run. I know I could always go work out. I know I could always take care of myself in the way that I have grown up taking care of myself. And I don't have to worry about, oh, I need this, you know, whatever pill from somewhere in order to make my life complete. You, We want to be less involved with that, more involved with, you know, trying natural stuff and uh, and taking care of ourselves and getting our body to be able to take care of itself. So, and uh, I'm 100% agreeing with what you're saying. It's just, it's the problem with our healthcare system, you know. They don't have any interest in keeping you healthy. They have interest in paying the least amount of money to get you to end of life. That's what it's come to, you know. So that's the problem with healthcare systems in general. Well, and unfortunately, we're stuck in a, you know, uh, socialized healthcare system with people that don't necessarily give a shit about their health. I mean, years ago, I I was, uh, uh, we were teaching the CrossFit football seminar. I was going to Denmark. And I sat, uh, sat next to a dude who was Danish, and he made an interesting point to me. He turned to me and goes, how the hell can you have a socialized healthcare system in America with people that don't give a fuck about their health? And I asked him, I'm like, is that, not, is that only in America? He's like, in, in these countries like uh, Denmark and Sweden and whatever, uh, if you don't or if you don't take care of yourself, and maybe it's changed in the last couple of years, if you don't take care of yourself, people aren't real fucking happy with you. So, I mean, health and wellness and fitness and staying healthy and walking and doing all these things are just part of our culture because if not, you become a drain on society. Your country actually takes it as a badge of honor where you have, uh, you know, people that are obese or running those up problems, you know, standing up to be championed. And, you know, we were talking about bravery when, you know, how can you have a standardized health care? And I looked at this guy and I was like, I have no fucking answer for you, but um, (laughs) I don't want to be lumped in with those fucking Martians. Right, because, um, you know, I actually. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but it, it was just an interesting point because he's like, you know, you're a pretty fit, dude. How do you feel about this? And I was like, not good. 
And uh, he's like, you know, uh, and then he proceeded just to rip on Americans like, hey, if you're in Denmark and you see somebody wearing white socks, they're usually a fucking tourist. And I was like, well, the Germans wear white socks. He's like, no, not really. They usually wear like more like wool socks. Usually white socks are Americans. And the guy was fucking great. Uh, He fucking ripped on me for the entire time. So you were being fit shamed. Uh, No. Well, he was. uh, Yeah, he was fine. Uh, It was good. But it was just an interesting point. The fact that. uh, And then the other thing that's always blown my mind is how much more involved in U.S. politics the rest of the world is more so than like like I mean, uh, like. I didn't know who the, you know, uh, like, I don't know anything about the, you know, the politics in Denmark or Sweden or any right. of these other countries. Who's the like chancellor I, of whatever? Yeah. No like, I, I know Germany, you know, I know what's going Who's on in Who's the prime Israel. minister? In, in Germany? Of Italy, of, uh, of uh, Great Britain. Oh, um, it's um, the wacky dude with the hair is. Uh, you just yeah. named him the other day. Yeah, I, I know. I just made fun of him. It's, no, um, I thought that was the uh, guy. Boris, Boris Johnson. Yeah, but you yeah know, Boris Johnson. I guarantee you every single Brit can be like, oh, yeah, you know, freaking I can't believe you guys have Trump as your president. And I'm like, how do you know? (laughs) Uh, Dude, the best is uh, uh, so Biden was over there busting ass. And I guess he was farting in front of the royal family because Camilla was like basically went on and on about it, how he was just ripping ass in front of the queen and everybody. And there was a huge thing in the UK about about Biden basically farting. (laughs) And uh, that was uh, like didn't see any of it here, but uh, unfortunately, I followed the BBC and it was a big, big piece of news. And uh, crapped his pants. Let's in front say of the that Pope. they are. Born he did shit. A, he he did shit his pants in front of the Pope. That's a that's another awkward one. So I mean, that's really what what America's good for. We're just no, farting and shitting pants. Shitting pants again. Uh, again, that fucking Biden, the old pants shitter. Uh, I do have more. If we're at a, a small breaking point, I do have more on the gentleman who had the spike through his head. Oh, excellent, Phineas Gage. So I knew that name. I just couldn't recall it at the moment. So it was 1848. He had a one meter long, 1.25 inches in diameter spike shoot through left cheek and then top of his head. No loss in speech, motor control, memory completely intact. However, he experienced personality changes according to his friends. There was a term named after him, no longer gauge, meaning if you're not acting yourself, this was coined during that and gambled away all his money, disrespectful, restless, and unreliable, according to all his his folks. And then uh, at 36, he died, passed away, seizures. So eventually took over. But during this this 10-year gap, just a completely reckless human being. And why this is important, there's a gentleman, a philosopher named Descartes. How do you spell it? Descartes. D, uh, D-E-S-C-A-R-T-S. Yeah, Descartes. Yeah, Descartes. Descartes. Yeah. yeah, Descartes. I think therefore so, I am. Yes. 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 So yes. 17th century. And recently, in, in just as late, early or late as the 90s, there became Descartes' error, where he was saying, like, motion and decision-making is not connected. And then... A lot of neuroscientists established Descartes' error and began to connect why, like, if we, if somebody made a decision, we're like, I can't believe they did that. Like, we're assuming they're using logic to make their decisions. So that was Descartes' error and that you, um, well, the, uh, the fallacy of that 
is people that are logically inclined always assume that people will always act within like a logical manner. Uh-huh. I've told you, like, I always think that most people will act within their best self-interest. The, the hard thing and what becomes difficult is when people start acting not in their self-interest, then it becomes kind of hard to, to foresee the future. But if you're a logical person, and I know, Joe, you've dealt with, uh, you know, people that are fucking batshit crazy like I have. Where you're like, let me explain logic to you. And then when their brain isn't working logically or logically, it's either broken or they're highly emotional individuals, which is what we've seen all too often in this COVID environment. The the emotion, that's exactly it. Because like I said, remember I told you about the prefrontal cortex and how we are overdeveloped as homo sapiens. This thing, we we are not animals anymore, man. You cannot let these emotions overrun you and and uh like you said, greed, anger, uh, you know, jealousy, rage, all that shit is just, we're no longer animals. We're not even close to animals. We're so far ahead of any thought process of what an animal or what we came from. If you, if, if you believe in that evolution, you know, uh, but from what we came from, we're so much further developed now. And, and as you look at this, you go, Jesus, man, uh, you know, uh, People are acting emotionally now because they are running out of, and I am doing this because here I am with a prefrontal cortex injury and I'm seeing who the hell just said that? Oh, that was me. Oh God, I'm so emotional. Why am I like that? You know? And, but you know, I have an excuse. I got hit in the head with a, with a truck. You I, know? I got brain damage. It's I got dream damage. Uh, the, uh, I was reading a pretty interesting research article that was talking about, uh, it was on, it was on genetics and actually it, I stumbled on it when I was looking for the hyperbarics, but they were talking about the gene, uh, associated with the ability to, uh, survive at high altitudes that the last place, um, pop or like the last place that was like, saw consistent human uh like population was like on the tibetan plateau and so uh like they 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 found some humans and then like all of a sudden they went away and it wasn't until like forty thousand years ago but they found remains of a of a different subspecies of humans Hmm. they were like um daikons or there it begins with a d desk uh but they found them up to one hundred and sixty thousand years ago and they had a genetic abnormality that allowed them to live on less oxygen and then there was an interbreeding and now all of a sudden then that's when they saw the population and so they were able to go and do some genetic testing on the people that are still within that and then look at bones and you know whole deal and they actually found some remains of this other offshoot. It's really fascinating if you look at all the different kind of hominid oh. offshoots. And oh, then yeah, what yeah. was wild, it was almost like Survivor. Like there was a whole bunch and then there was one. And right. like it, it, and it's like Homo erectus, uh, Homo sapiens. And then right. it, it was weird. There was all of these and then it converged into like one or two. And the, uh, you know, they're, they always go by like, you know, why were they extinct? I think that they just assimilated. I think they were probably like humans, you know, we were probably smarter and we were like, wow, those Neanderthal chicks are hotter. Let's get them, you know? So the interesting part is I, I think that we actually ate them. I think that's where cannibalism came from is that you, you can eat something that is like Homo erectus. You could eat Homo erectus if you're Homo sapien, you know, that's, that's doable, but you can't eat Homo sapien if you're Homo sapien. So that was, I thought that. you could eat them as long as you didn't eat the brain because eating human brain causes something you can, but I think you can digest the flesh. Oh, I mean, it's it's physically it's doable. Physically, anything's doable, right? But I think you're right. There's like 
don't Kuru think they call disease. it mad cow disease. But Kuru, yeah. Kuru, K-U-R-U. Every pun intended. Yeah, there's uh, – but oh, but so I you think, think they, that they just got consumed? I think that that was what it was. I think that that was – we wound up – we because of our development, like we overshot – we have this huge development as, as what we are now. We became these super freaking humans compared to what we were, and it was just like – we crushed them. We literally crushed well, the. Well, that's every from Clan. Other- do, you, do you remember Clan of the Cave Bear? Do you remember with Daryl Hannah and uh, the the book? If you read it, but it, it was also a movie. You remember she was uh, like the Neanderthals had the big foreheads and the memories, so they yeah. they couldn't learn. They were just born with memories. And then yeah. she was the uh, Homo sapien, and she's trying to like the the highest they could the count was five. And you remember she starts counting, and their eyes like fucking, and their heads explode. But I uh, the interesting thing is if they uh, all the Neanderthal skulls they find all have huge gashes in the skull. They all died violent deaths. So what they theorized was that they weren't skilled enough or they didn't understand hunting. So they tried to bum rush and fucking beat animals to death with their arms or punch and fight them. And then they just oh, ended boy. up getting fucking murdered. So all the Neanderthal skulls have these huge gashes in the skulls. That's interesting. Or the other Neanderthals decided to take them out, you know? Yeah. So either they took themselves out or we helped them take themselves out because we're just more cunning. And, you know, but like I said, we're such a, farly developed species we're, we're further ahead than we ever were i mean well i guess if you're looking in the family it's the genus right so the genus of our group uh we're so so much more developed than any of the other previous uh genus that uh oh boy but yeah i think uh the i think that we proved that humans could eat humans pretty well when that airplane crashed yeah. and uh you know well well the uh uh like in the donner party they also did that one yeah, uh, which is you know they they always kind of paint it like oh these people died they were frozen people started eating them I'm like no they killed them and ate them uh, <laughs> yeah like like let's be fucking honest on this yeah. um, do you think that uh, the the other thing and and I take a notepad into uh, the hyperbarics and I just basically like write down weird thoughts I have yeah by um, the way I'm going to choke you because you're not supposed to be taking anything in there that you weren't born with but that's okay okay well I, I take a pen or a piece of paper and a pencil. Um, but, uh, the interesting piece is, do you think there's some contributing factor to like air quality? Do you believe that the air, uh, you know, we've talked about like methane, like, you know, uh, in different, you know, thousands of years ago, like the methane load was much higher. So therefore flora and fauna was bigger. Do you think that like the air quality is greatly diminished and maybe that's causing some of the problems because the air is not as pure? Uh, cause you know, we're talking about huffing basically pure oxygen is like a benefit, all I'm wondering is that maybe the air is polluted, so maybe that's a contributing factor, so maybe that's why we're seeing it. Why we're seeing what? The like the increase? benefits for the hyperbarics? Oh, benefits for hyperbarics. I don't know. It might have something to do with the CO2-rich environment, a little more carbon dioxide, uh, you know, because carbon dioxide bonds more readily to hemoglobin than oxygen does, so you reduce the oxygen-carrying capacity of hemoglobin by displacing it on the four seats on the bus. You know, so maybe it's one of those like, oh yeah, it could be, uh, it could be the particulates that are in the uh, the air and could very well be dependent upon where you live. Uh, even worse, so yeah, the answer is I don't know, but sure, it sounds good. I mean, you know, look, there, there's a reason why we go around and we collect these things called gorgonians. Gorgonians are sea fans and they have this great capacity to live anywhere in deep depths, in shallow water, hot, 
cold, CO2 rich environment, O2 rich environment, they can live and adjust to be anywhere. If we could only study and be like them, like you said, those, uh, the, the tribe that uh, was able to exist above certain thousand feet on the plateau, the Tibetan yeah. plateau. I mean, personally, I think that those would have survived better than dying off. You know, I would have thought that that was a, a good trait because even, even when you come back down to normal altitude, if you, your compensatory mechanisms have created more carbon, uh, more um, hemoglobin, then when you get down to regular altitude, you you are a superstar. All of well, a sudden, you have the capacity to run fast, stay hard, go long. The the only thing I and um, we had Mike Matthews on the podcast. Uh, we're supposed to try to get him back on, but he made a really interesting point once about uh, humans being really good at violence, and he <laughs> and he was like uh, uh, basically like. Probably, you know, one of the most violent things to ever walk on, you know, and people, you know, grizzly bears, like humans, uh, humanity. No, no. And and the the one thing that's pretty interesting when you look at like this different group, like, you know, they, uh, you know, here was this alternate, you know, leg of, you know, homo something. And it began with a D and it's totally fucking escaping me. But they, you know, they found remains for 160,000 years and they were adapted to live at this environment. And then all of a sudden humans show up and then they fucking disappear and get assimilated and they still find these other pieces I'm wondering if all these groups were just trying to get away from fucking homo sapiens because of like something within the violent nature or like you said, maybe we're just way more intelligent and way more cunning, which just allowed us to fucking kill everybody. Yep. So yeah, I mean, no, it, no, no. It, did we assimilate them or did we just go Genghis Khan and just fucking wrote them all into the dirt? Yeah. I mean, that's, that is the tough part. I mean, we, you know, like a grizzly, a grizzly bear might kill you. But it's not going to kill you with a vengeance. It's not coming after you because it, you know, you attacked its kid. I mean, maybe in the moment, if you attack the kid, it might come after you. But it's not like a next week, I'm going to remember that guy with the red hair. I'm going to freaking go after him. No, it's like, okay, I'm just going to kill you because you're between me and food or you're between me and whatever. They're primal, right? We are vengeance, vengeance-filled, vengeful killers that let this hate grow inside us. And then all of a sudden, it comes out on this uns- unsuspecting 85-year-old woman that cuts us off in traffic. And she gets the F-bomb. Like, <laughs> what the hell? Why are you so angry with her? All right, I'm not. I'm sorry. It's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just driving. Oh, man, it's uh, – there. I mean, the – man, and, and, I, I'm, and, and I know there's no answers to any of this stuff. But, like, the idea of, like, there has to be some evolutionary reason why at these, at these different depths this effect happens. I mean, yeah, like, I wonder. Uh, like, like, cause I mean, here, here's the thing. Like, uh, as I was sitting there thinking, like, in this tube, I'm like, could the same effect was if I was breathing pure O2 and I went down and I, you know, I mean, on the Navy tables, I could probably stay at 66 feet for, you know, 75 minutes. If I just went down and stayed at the bottom and swam around drinking, you know, with pure O2 at two atmospheres and then came back up, did a decompression and did a dive every single day for, for, you know, five days a week. Uh, at, you know, uh, like for 40 dives, would the effects be the same? Actually, it would probably be better because of the redistribution of fluids in the body. Because where do all your, where does all your blood stay? Your blood stays due to gravity in the lower part of the lower part of the body, right? And regardless what you do, you're in gravity. So it's pooling, right? So it pools in the lower part of the body and it doesn't distribute really evenly. But if you're in a zero G environment like the water or like space where you're you're in this constant, you know, you 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 
redistribute that fluid throughout your body. Now that fluid, because you're, you're running around here dehydrated. Most people run around here dehydrated and uh, you, you know, but the more hydration you have, the better distribution of fluids that you have, the better all of your other stuff winds up working. So, you know, like when you go up into space or when you go underwater, I believe that the redistribution of fluid is helping you at that point uh, every day. So it's absolutely exactly the same, only better if you were to dive at 100 feet or at 60 feet on Pier 2 Here's the problem. Oxygen is toxic. And when you move around and you increase your metabolism, because remember, you're not just laying there like you are in a chamber doing absolutely nothing. You're, you're moving around, kicking, you know, you're increasing the it's all about perfusion, right? So you're increasing the blood flow in your body. And as you increase the blood flow in your body, you probably increase the likelihood of central nervous system oxygen toxicity, which in the chamber isn't going to give you a problem, but in the water, it's going to kill you dead because you're going to drown from, you know, breathing in water. You know, it's not the seizure that killed you. It's not the oxygen seizure that killed you. It's the breathing in the water after you're done with the tonic clonic phase, right? So if, uh, I mean, is there any side effects for uh, oxygen, like oxygen saturation? Um, like what's kind of weird for me is like I noticed like uh, all of a sudden I broke out on the side of my face. Like that was kind of a weird one, um, you know. That is probably is from the mask. Stereo- very what's stereotypically that? from the mask. Yeah. Yeah, yep. no, yeah, right, right there all of a sudden it broke out. So, I mean, but is there uh, like um, the other one I noticed was all of a sudden like on by day five, it almost feels like I lose my voice. Um, Molecules, uh, you know, you're breathing a more dense breathing media. How much are you talking during it? Nothing. I mean, other than I'm just singing to myself, humming. Hmm. So then the only other thing that I could think is that the gas is not, it's very, very dry. But yeah. short of that, it really shouldn't be an issue. Like yeah. I use liquid oxygen here. So my stuff is really moist, you know, moister, mm. more moist, whatever. Um, so, you know, but the gaseous oxygen tends to be a little bit more dry and therefore you could get a dry scratchy cough. But Nothing. You know, okay. it, but uh, like, I mean, just, I mean, like, and you see where I'm going with this. Like, like yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering, I'm like, God, there's got to be some evolutionary reason where like either the gravity was different or maybe uh, uh, like our perception of gravity was different because obviously yeah. as you go down gravity in, or sorry, gravity's decreased underwater, but pressure increases. So yep. is it something with our, within our environment where now all of a sudden like the gravity and the pressures at sea level or like, I, you know, and this is what I said as I lay there for 90 minutes thinking, I'm like, there's gotta be an evolutionary reason that this is happening. And more importantly, how the fuck in the guy in 1654 did he figure out how to make a fucking chamber out of uh, out of iron and fucking do this? Like, like the I mean, because in because did he do the deal with like the pigs and wasn't that in 1654 or was that uh, in the fifties? 1654, uh, 1950s something was life without blood, but uh, 1664 but, was the first hyperbaric chamber. And what was that guy? And he was using it for like stomach ailments. Henshaw, yeah, he was using it for uh, digestive problems, and I think he called it like a domicilium or something. Uh, how the fuck did he do that? Yeah, I mean, domicilium. Nathaniel. So, so how, how did he, with that technology, how did he necessarily replicate lower atmospheres? Did he just pull he out increased, oxygen? Increased, no, he increased the pressure. You increase the pressure, you push more, you push more gas into it. And I mean, once again, he was probably just trying to figure some shit out 
I mean, hey, what's a good use for these new boilers that we have? I got a leftover boiler from a steam engine. What am I going to do with this? Hey, let's see if we can put a person in it. I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> necessity is the mother of invention. I don't think that they actually came up with it for any reason. They were, It's a side effect. And they were like, oh, hey, my belly got better when I was in there. Oh, yeah, I was treating you for that. Right? Yeah. So, no, it, you know. It, yeah, it just feels like it's such an interesting phenomenon and such a weird change in the physiology, stand, you know, different than our normal environment. Right. That all of a sudden, hey, at these different atmospheres, all of a sudden now certain things that we didn't think were possible are possible. But there has to be yeah. some uh, uh, evolutionary reason. I mean, and that's um, where, unfortunately, I've been looking and there's fucking nothing. Yeah, no, I like it. But that's, see, that's the original thought that comes from that. Now, all of a sudden, you start pulling the string and then, you know, maybe you'll find somebody, an evolutionary person that can start thinking in that same vein. And maybe there's something there. I just, it's just not me. I'm not that smart. Well, no, at, at the end of the day, uh, what I'm really hoping on is at the end of this 40, um, I can go and uh, have that neurological testing done and see some, you know, remarkable increase and to show being like, Hey, this is exactly what I did within the supplements, which I shot you over right. that protocol. Um, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, CoQ10 and, you know, Moxie yep. and there's a whole bunch of different ways to, you know, ramp up, uh, you know, mitochondria, but also, you know, uh, having a bigger aerobic base increases mitochondrial density, which is beneficial. And then, mm. you know, I mean, being able to figure out like, is there a protocol? And like the, the biggest one is, uh, it'd be crazy to say, Hey, you know, you got to dive every day. I mean, is it an every other day? And I know you're in the process of testing. You can't answer. Right. But it, it, it would be nice to have a more easily accomplished protocol more so than like five days a week. Right. So, yeah, uh, that's actually one of the things that my Ph.D. student is working on is the, uh, hey, is it five days a week for three sessions or is it three days a week, double the time? You know, we double the time on those three days a week because logistics being what they are. I mean, geez, it's hard. It's really hard. So, yeah. you know, but yeah, I don't know is the answer. We're we're making shit up as we go along. But, you know, perfect right. is the enemy of good enough. And, uh, you know, <laughs> we're working towards good enough at this point. So, you know, nice. everybody's like, can't you just make it shorter? Can I just take a pill? Yes. Go take a pill. Yeah, we'll see what happens. But no, I mean, that's, you know, selfishly, like, you know, I'd like to see some increase, but it'd be really nice when people hit me up to be like, oh, yeah, you have this problem. This is what I did. Go do this protocol. Go talk to, uh, go talk to Dr. Joe. I mean, go to Tampa or here's some other places you could go. Right, exactly. It'd be, it would be nice more so than like, well, I did a ketogenic diet and I felt better. Well, I didn't right. like a ketogenic diet. Uh, I did uh, micronutrient testing. I didn't feel any different. Like all these things are, you know, I got stronger. It just, it, it would be nice to have something more concrete, more so than like, I mean, because if you go to a doctor right now with TBI, what's the, uh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm having uh, emotional problems. I'm having this. I mean, yeah, like what's even the pharmaceutical treatment at this point? No, oh, oh, I can tell you there's antipsychotics that are out there that, that they are trying to throw me on. Antipsychotics. I'm like, they're like, well, you're having all these problems. We need to get we need to get rid of these problems. I'm like, I'm having a problem because I got a freaking I had a stroke. <laughs> it was, I had a hemorrhagic stroke. I mean, I have a bleeding cell in my brain, you know? Oh, wait, let's give you antipsychotics because now you're acting psychotic. So let's just treat the problem, not the actual. Yeah. Or treat the yeah. symptoms, not not the actual Let, cause. Treat the symptoms, not the problem. That's exactly my thing. So but I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the uh, uh, anybody I've ever met that was on mood stabilizers usually becomes pretty unstable. 
Like if somebody's right. like, oh, I'm on mood stabilizers. I'm like, yeah, uh, today, but tomorrow you're going to be fine. I mean, it just, it, because it's effectively, they're trying to create this like, and, uh, you know, Turley got into this pretty, pretty regularly where he was going to the doctor and every time he went, they just kept giving him another drug and they didn't right. tell him to stop taking the other ones. So he's on these like 12 like mood stabilizers, antipsychotics oh. and this like basically this, uh, uh, you know, this fucking cornucopia of drugs and, um, you know, he, I think he was like hiding in his closet naked with a gun, trying to figure out the best way to off himself. And he, you know, so, and he, he, you know, and he effectively, uh, you know, he's a huge, you know, benefit or, uh, uh, you know, proponent of, of cannabis and, you know, marijuana saved oh, him yeah. and it did a great job for him. But unfortunately my whole thing is while I think it's, uh, it's taking the place of those is, is there necessarily a healing effect like similar to what we're seeing with the hyperbarics, like, you know, with the COVID, like I've always said to people, man, like I would much rather seeing a bunch of people uh, using cannabis than taking a bunch of opiates. But at the end of the day, you can't tell me that uh, that that cannabis is somehow going to, you know, fix the brain in terms of like increasing circulation and jamming oxygen into places it's never been. Yeah, I don't think that that's a thing for cannabis. But so interesting that you said that uh, about the psychiatrists and psychologists and and the way that they treat things, right? So these people are the the problem with the clinical demonstration project that I've uh, been working with at uh, the VA hospital here is that the psychologists and psychiatrists are the gatekeepers before they come to hyperbarics. So you have to be a two treatment failure. That means you have to fail drugs and you have to fail counseling. But it's at the determination of the psychologist or psychiatrist that you fail both of those things. What psychologist or psychiatrist is going to say, I've tried everything I can. I've tried counseling him as much as I can. Counseling is no longer going to work. I think we should do something different. How many, how many psychiatrists or psychologists are ever going to say it? I'd be like, you just need more counseling, son. It doesn't get cured overnight. You know, I realize you've been here for 12 years, but we'll get you. Jesus. <laughs> so. It's unfortunate, but that's just, you know, look, but, but like, look to me, I'm, everything is a nail and I'm a hammer, right? So I, I don't know what to tell you. You know, I, I look at things a certain way. So do you, you have your position. So does a psychologist or psychiatrist, you know? So it's unfortunate, but when you're giving somebody the keys to that kingdom, then all of a sudden they're going to be making the decisions to benefit them. Like you said. Yeah. The, uh, the mix of pharmaceuticals is really interesting. Um, just because they're, they're constantly searching and they'll, they mean to the point where, you know, uh, I've dealt with this with some of the clients, but also talking to Kyle, they were always talking about the right amounts and we got to right. find the right combination that helps you be normal. Right. And I remember being like, well, first of all, what's fucking normal and who's yeah, yeah. deciding this and like, uh, you know, anxiety and all the other stuff. And then you look at like the, um, like, in, and Kyle was pretty hilarious because he started reading me the side effects of all the drugs. He's like, okay, this one's supposed to do this, but here's the 47 side effects, and here's all the drugs that they're giving you to combat those side effects that have these side effects. And as I'm like going through and I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck these things are. And he's like, nobody does. And, and exactly. you know, like, like the clinical testing and the efficacy of these things, like who knows? And like every one of them is like, and the side effect is suicide. You're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know? yeah. Unless you oh, get the right combination. That, you know, are you kidding me? How is that really a thing? Yeah, no, I mean, I think we have to do better. And uh, I think uh, part of this thing, and at least for me, is, um, you know, because, I mean, uh, kids get fucked up. Uh, players are fucked up. You know, the fact that uh, Demarius Thomas, I mean, 33 years old, having a stroke like that. Like, how many strokes was he having? 
Yeah, I mean uh, seizures rather, um, not stroke. But I mean, how many seizures was he having? Was he being treated for these seizures? You know, what was he doing? You know, how are they helping him? I mean, thirty healthy thirty three year old guys just don't die like that. And if they do, it's a bigger fucking problem we need to deal with. Yep, we agree. So, anything else, Tex? No, Doctor Joe. Where can they find you, man? <laughs> on the line. Yeah, hit me on Instagram at Dr. Deep Sea um, or then Facebook. Um, you can look up Joe DeTori. And, uh, but otherwise, uh, uh, www.drdeepsea.com. Uh, check that out. And I'm always working at the Undersea Oxygen Clinic, so you can stop by uh, 701 Northwest Shore, Tampa, Florida, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll take care of you, walk you around the facility. Sweet. Maybe cool. You, you need to get your heart rate up. Mons Venus is just on the road. <laughs> Let's go to Tampa. <laughs> Tampa. <laughs> oh, you guys are hilarious. I love awesome. it. Well, thanks, Joe. I really appreciate you tuning in to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Thank you. Love you guys. Love you too. Bye. Thanks, man. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Dr. Joe Deturi on Instagram at Dr. Deep C. Until next time, bye.